So let's, let's pray. Lord, shape us. Lord, form us. Lord, mold us. Make us into the kind of people that you dream we would be. Lord, as we look at this spiritual discipline, this formational exercise of worship, Lord, guide us, show us, Lord, what it is and what it is not. How we have uh, twisted it in various ways. How we have not made it all that it could be. Forgive us of, of times of making it about ourselves or uh, about what we want out of it, like, like consumers of worship. Lord, show us through your word, through our conversation, Lord, what this formational exercise of worship is like and what it can do in us and what it can do through us. And so speak to us, we pray. In your name we pray. Amen. So today we continue. We are in the third week of our Lenten sermon series. Believe it or not, we're halfway to Easter. Um, Lent, as, as we have talked about before, is this journey towards the cross, um, walking with Jesus to the cross and then his death on the cross and then being laid in the tomb on Holy Saturday. And so we have been taking our time over the last couple weeks to look at spiritual disciplines to help form us in the way of Jesus and the kingdom of God. We, we don't, like just with exercise, we don't get formed if we don't participate. If you don't um, get up and run or lift weights or uh, whatever, we don't, can't expect that we're going to look a certain way. If the only thing I lift is another Reese's peanut butter cup, my arm ain't going to be that big. My belly might be. Depends on how big. Well, then my belly is still bigger than my arm. Okay? And so it takes discipline, hence the spiritual disciplines, to, to give ourselves into these things. And so we have been talking about, um, we've been talking about confession. We've been talking and practicing fasting. We have been talking and practicing simplicity. And today we talk and we've been practicing, and this week we'll talk further and practice together, this discipline of worship. And so this word worship, I think, has lots of connotations or lots of mental images that we bring. And so I, I want to kind of start there is when I say worship, you think of singing, you think of what? What comes to mind or what definition you have of worship? So singing is already one of them. Being. Okay. Nice. Dancing. Dancing. Just the feeling of, of how joyful it is to be so finite. And 
Yeah, no, and I can't even summarize that. I don't even want to try because it was. If I did summarize it, I would like cheapen it. I think. Spirit. Spirit. Worth. Worship. Well, there goes half my sermon, man. <laughs> Gone right away. Fellowship with God. Okay, nice. Adore. Adore. That's a good word. Singing. Didn't we have that already? No, I don't know. Didn't Laura literally say that? <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't say singing. Oh. You said singing in the beginning. No, I thought you said that. Oh, okay. Singing, yeah. So, praying. Praying? Okay. Living in the way that makes God smile. Wow, I don't even remember that. Okay. Yeah. So, as Nelson has rightly put, the word worship is actually an old English word which actually means worthship, to ascribe worth to something, to give value to something to demonstrate and attribute this sense of worth and, and particularly in that kind of conversation to a deity, to a God. And so worship, uh, all too often, what we tend to think of though in our American uh, church is we tend to think of worship is songs, an hour in, on Sunday morning done in a specific building for that specific person, purpose. But worship, I think, scripturally speaking, isn't, ju- isn't just relegated to singing, to a building, and to a time on Sunday morning. Worship is this idea of 24 7 365, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 day reality that includes music, building, and part of the day. But it also includes things like work. It also includes things like that are, that's near and dear to my heart is snowboarding. That's worship. Um, maybe that sounds weird, but I always feel a sense of worship when I'm on my snowboard. It includes school. It includes his relationship. In fact, actually, there's probably nothing that it cannot encompass with a right understanding of worship. And so we're going to look at a couple texts this morning that talk, that kind of flesh out this idea of worship and see what the scriptures have to say to us about this discipline of worship and how it helps form us into the kind of people that Jesus wants us to look like, to be, to engage in. And so the first place we're going is John chapter 4. John chapter 4, 19 through 24. That's where we're headed. Now, this is the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. And in this narrative, in the book of John, this is the only sustained conversation in all the book of John that Jesus has about worship. The only sustained narrative. 
conversation. In fact, in the five verses that I just said, 19 to 24, the verb for worship occurs nine times. So something in there, something with that um, repetitiveness means something is going on. Anytime that you look at the scriptures and you see this like a word so many times, that should clue in something is really important with this. And also, the now for worshiper occurs only this one time in all of the New Testament. So, John chapter 4, verses 19 through 24. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worship the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. So we're obviously picking up in the middle of the story. It'd be like walking in an hour into a movie and going, what is going on? So let's do some context. So Jesus is going from southern Israel to northern Israel. And now normally, when a good Jewish person would want to go north they would actually want to avoid Samaria. Now, Samaria was made up of the Samaritans, and they were uh, entitled half-breeds. They were part Jewish and part Assyrian. They had intermarried with the Assyrians, and so there was no good Samaritan. That was an oxymoron. They were despised. And so a good Jewish person would rather... If they were traveling north, they would literally cross over the Jordan River, go up on the other side of the river, and then cross over so that they didn't have to go through Samaria. But in this text, we see Jesus saying he has to go through Samaria. And so he heads straight north. And he ends up in the town of Sychar. And he comes to this well and meets this Samaritan woman. And they begin this conversation about water and living water And they get to this point in the conversation, and he says to her, go call your husband. And she says, I have no husband. And he says, that's right. You had five husbands, and the the man that you are living with now is not your husband. He's putting his finger on a pain point in her life, her relationship with men. I don't know what happens when someone gets too close and too personal with you. Puts their thumb on something that is a pain point. I don't know what you do. I guess it depends on how strong the relationship is. But in this case, in this instant, she avoids the conversation altogether. She goes around it to an area of disagreement that the Jewish people and the Samaritans have. One of the, one of the biggest disagreements is what is the proper place to worship. 
She says, you Jews think it's Jerusalem. We Samaritans think it's Mount Gerizim. So which one is it? Who's right? Who's wrong? Now what you see is, according to a commentary, the first, by, by the first century CE, Samaritans held a Torah-centered faith focused on the patriarchs' center worship on Mount Gerizim and looked for a Messiah who would be a prophet like, like Moses. The Jewish people held a broader scriptural tradition that included the prophets, center worship in Jerusalem, and looked for the Messiah in the line of David. And so the interesting thing about this question is, is where is the proper place of worship is, it misses the point totally. It's not about this mountain or this city. It's not about a temple. Worship isn't confined to a specific gender, to an ethnicity, to a geography. Worship is a human reaction to a divine initiative. Human reaction to divine initiative. So for us to worship God, who Jesus states is spirit, is to worship in the spirit and in truth. And then Jesus continues, true worshipers that God the Father desires are those who know this, who know the truth. The truth being one, true worshipers know themselves. They know who they are. That yes, they are created in the divine image of God. That they are image bearers. Yes. But they are also broken, fallen, sinners. So true worshipers know that they are saint and that they are sinners. All in one. But they also know that the truth about God himself, and that is best seen in the person, the ministry, the work, the mission, the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. They know themselves, and they know Jesus. Because when we get a clear vision of who we are and who God is, that should put us in this place that desires our life to be a life of worship, a lifestyle given to God. And we respond in worship. If the kind of worshipers that God the Father desires are worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth, what does spiritual and truthful worship look like? What does it encompass? How, does it, how is it shaped? How do we practice it? If worship isn't confined to a building to music, to an hour or two sun, on Sunday morning, what is it actually? Now, we're going to go to another text. Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. I think this gives us some insight into what spiritual and true worship looks like. Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your Brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. He starts chapter 12. He says, therefore. You know what therefore is? 
therefore, it's to see what has come before. And now, because of what has come before, such and such and such. And so what Paul is saying is, hey, look back. Look at Romans 9 to 11, which is about 2,000 English words. And what you find is that Paul is describing and exploring the core elements of God's relationship with humanity. His love, his grace, his compassion, his mercy, his forgiveness. And because of those things, that they are core elements and attributes of God himself and his relationship with us, therefore... We are urged to present or offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Now, when you hear the word sacrifice, most, if you understand and know the Old Testament, what do you think of? You think of as an act of worship, taking this dove, taking this sheep, taking this bull, and slaughtering it on the altar. Okay? 100% of the, of the sacrifice is used. But Paul is saying, no, no. We are to be a living sacrifice. So that means we, you, we get as, a, as our body, we lay our body on the altar. We become that sacrifice. But unlike the dove and the goat and the bull, we then get up off the altar to live a life of worship. To die to ourselves, to what Paul says, the old life, the patterns of this world. And we get up and live in the way of Jesus. We sacrifice ourselves. We give of our entire selves. Those early priests didn't just take a part of the bull. They didn't just take part of the sheep. They didn't just take part of the dove. They used it all whether on the altar or some of the meat then got eaten by the priest, all of it was to be used when we are a living sacrifice. 100% of our lives are and are to be worship. Worship is a lifestyle, a 24-hour, 7-day-a-week, 365, holy and completely for Jesus. Put it this way. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That is worship. And so God calls us to encompass our whole lives, our whole being, our body, our soul, our mind, our strength. Worship is a whole body experience. Everything. In fact, the word worship can also be translated to prostrate. The word bless is, can be literally mean to kneel, and thanksgiving is an extension of the hand. So we are embodied beings. It is not just a spiritual thing that's up in nebulous land somewhere. Too often we think that we have to go to another plane of existence to encounter God. We have to get out of ourselves. But what Jesus and Paul are trying to get at is true and proper worship is an act of not conforming to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind. It's a worship that changes us from the inside out. It impels us to and propels us to greater obedience. 
it actually also shows us to go out into the world to fight against the principalities and power of this dark world. True, proper worship is just as much about Tuesday at 11 a.m. as it is about Sunday at 11 a.m. True and proper worship is just as much about your home, your office building, your school building as it is about the church building. True and proper worship is just as much about silence, solitude, service, snowboarding, swimming as it is about music. True and proper worship is the kind of worship that the Father desires. He desires us to worship in spirit and in truth. And as the video said earlier, it's all of life. It's everything we do. The discipline of worship is everything. And so I, I close this part with this commentary that I found about Romans 12. This commentator says, I think of Romans as a call to abandon the sin of individualism and to embrace the cross-cultural Christian life. The life to which God, Paul calls Christians in Rome and consequently those in the 21st century is a life that exhibits the essence of God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Put differently, a holy life is one through which all one says and does is governed by sacrificial living. To worship the God proclaimed in this letter and throughout Scripture is to adopt a stance of humility and self-denial. Worship equals self-denial. To put the way of Jesus and his kingdom before your own. To lay yourself down on the altar. So we're going to pause there for a moment. And I want us to focus on two questions. Hey, John. Can you go switch something? Two questions that are there and they're going to be up on the screen. Where is there some conflict for you in these passages? What is the Spirit disrupting? And where is there some clarity for you in this passage? Or what is the Spirit confirming? And so we're going to take a couple minutes... To, for you to be still, be quiet, to look at John 4, 19-24 and Romans 12, 1-2 and think about conflict and clarity. So take some time to reflect on those and then we'll start. Then we'll transition into conversation.
So as you reflected, we're going to transition to a time of sharing and just try to kind of be concise with your sharing. It's okay. We're going to have, we might have differing opinions. It's okay to hear something that you may disagree with. Um, but we're going to share first for you as you reflected, as you looked at the text, where is there some conflict for you or kind of what is the spirit um, disrupting for you? Self-centered and like, oh, 
of, of whatever. So like, I just feel like, like what I'm struggling with is like, yes, but, like yes and, or like, like okay, like this is a concept that, you know, I've heard, I, 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 it's not an unfamiliar concept, I've read this past a million times, but like, what, like, you could, you could kind of say that, but then at the same time, like, you have to go the whole way around it and say, okay, but now what? Like, no, it's, no, it's not. Like, I mean, that doesn't mean that we're actually doing it. I mean, just because I'm worshiping all the time doesn't mean that I'm actually worshiping all the time. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, like, so, like, my question is, so how do we move further than just this sort of, uh, what could become a very shallow excuse to do anything to do and say it's for God? That reminds me of my daughter's a fancy shawl dancer when she was young. And the fancy shawl dance is the same thing uh, it says in the Indian Bible, but uh, what Paul was saying was when the caterpillar becomes a butterfly, that's the story behind the fancy shawl dance. And my daughter, when she'd become a Christian, she really started doing her fancy dances because I do this. And when I'm dancing, that's how I feel. I know that Jesus has changed me, and I am now a butterfly. So you can use it doing that, whether she's dancing and winning a thousand dollars for winning the contest. But now that was different. <laughs> but she said, but when I when I was dancing, I really just was showing the world as I am So it's hard for us to discern when we're worshiping the twenty-four-seven or every second of the day. I mean, I don't think God expects us to be so religious about it that we put ourselves in the Like calms me down and settles me. Mm -hmm. Like that's what dance does for me. And 
I think it's kind of, I, I see it both ways. It, it is, it is uh, conflict. Because I don't think if you, if that doesn't bother you, I don't think we understand it. But it also gets us. Like, like this should bother us. Yeah. Like even internally. I, no, I like this. I don't want to lose that. I don't. I don't want to give that away. I like that. But at the same time, it's also clarity. Like. Yeah. I, I brought this up before in our discussions, but I, I spent some time reading about near-death experiences, and these are people who have physically died and then come back. And for many people who've gone through that, they started out before this event as either being agnostic or atheist or nominal Christian or whatever. But after that experience, when they actually did die and came back, they were different people. And it sounds to me like that's what Romans and, uh, and John, thank you. Or saying that we have to be that different in order to do this daily, be a prayer, be a worship to God. And if that's true, my question is, what does it really take? Because most of us aren't going to have near death experiences. Unless you want to volunteer. <laughs> <laughs> I won't. I encourage you part that I said at the beginning of Romans 12. It says, by the mercy. So I think it takes God's mercy and grace for that transformation to happen. I think some clarity for me is that sometimes I personally sometimes don't like feel like I'm sometimes like well sometimes I do feel like I'm growing in my faith, but sometimes I don't. And to know that other things that I wouldn't think of as worship or I like have such a narrow mind of it that I think I have to be doing like singing or dancing or, or anything like that to be worshiping. And to know like other things can be worship is just so relieving because it helps me feel like I'm not like doing anything wrong. I'm still worshiping in a different way than, I, than my narrow-minded box view is saying is what it is. Does that make sense? <laughs> Daily life with the things that are quote help you 
have communion with God. Uh, yeah, well, I understand what you're saying. Though. I see worship in things as um, having intent and meaning behind what I'm doing. Um, is, is what I'm doing um, pleasing to God? Is it, is it um, doing good in the world? Um, am I actively seeing God in this moment on the top of the mountain while I'm hiking or sticking and soaking in the beauty that is the world at that moment? You know, that, that's, you know, or I could just be on the top of a mountain doing, I don't know, drinking, drink smoking a cigarette, you know, it's like, you know, hating life kind of thing. So I think it, there's, there's the intent and the meaning behind the act.
So let me, let me just uh, close with this quote. Um, and this, this is a commentary on Romans 12 that I, that I found to be kind of concise and, and really kind of wraps up kind of what we've been talking about. This commentator says, looking at the first two verses, meaning Romans 12, 1 and 2, we might conclude that worship is adequately performed through our corporate liturgy, preaching, and music. These practices are not wrong, but they do not reach far enough. For Paul, worship is full-bodied. It happens in community as we live out our faith by serving one another to build up the body of Christ. The quality of our worship is not measured by what happens only on Sunday mornings, but what happens when we are together Monday through Saturday. And so worship can be all of life with intention and it's also active as a living sacrifice and so may we through God the spirit of God see all of life or all of life can be acts of worship amen